Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The taco. We've all had one, no matter where you live. In its simplest form, it's a tortilla, meat, cheese, and sauce. But did you know there were hundreds of variations? My name is Rob Gookie. I'm a film and television composer born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I'm also a connoisseur of tacos, and I wrote a book called Taco City Los Angeles, exploring tacos and the chefs in my city and what inspires them to make the tacos they do. This show will delve deeper into the taquerias of the world and also teach you how to make them. Welcome to Taco City. So a few weeks ago, we had a Taco City episode with Eric Galindo of LA Taco. Um, and Eric actually introduced me to um, Jaime and Romero, which you, who you'll remember from um, an episode earlier this season uh, from the restaurant Mexicano and La Casita. And uh, I got invited to Jaime and Romero's media launch party about a month later. And at the party, I met the editor of LA Taco, Daniel Hernandez. And I asked Daniel if he'd like to be on the show, and he said he'd love to. Um, Daniel wrote a book back in 2011 called Down and Delirious in Mexico City. Um, it's, it's an amazing book. It's the best book about Mexico that I have found so far. It, it is a great um, book about Mexico City as a whole and not just about one thing. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, and Daniel himself is not only the editor-in-chief of El Valle Taco, he was a writer for the LA Times, uh, for Vice. Um, he He's an amazing writer. Um, this was a very exciting interview for me. I was really looking forward to being able to sit down with him. Um, and so he came over um, and we just had a conversation for an hour. And I'm basically going to just let it play through as opposed to the normal way we do a Talk of City episode where I will jump in between um, segments of the interview. I thought I would just play the interview, uh, which is basically a conversation between Daniel and I about um, Los Angeles and about food and about media um, and writing and Mexico City. Um, and as opposed to doing a history lesson in Mexico City, which I really want to do, um, I thought I would let Daniel talk about it more in his own words. Um, so without further ado, here is the interview with LA Tacos editor, Daniel Hernandez. Okay, so tell me about your earliest food memory, um, a, a positive food memory that you have growing up. A most positive food memory growing up would probably have to be when my mother would make handmade um, flour tortillas, um, which to me was the most normal thing in the universe. I grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border. We had a very binational frame of mind and a binational existence and a binational geography to our daily life. And I always thought that was the most normal thing in the world. <laughs> and um, 
part of that, I think, was sort of the reverence that we had growing up for handmade flour tortillas, my mother taking the masa, adding the flour, rolling it, rolling it, rolling it, rolling it, and then spreading out the tortillas and making them. And we would, you know, pair those for breakfast, you know, with beans and chorizo, eggs. And that was probably the defining thing for me that I remember most about sort of the kitchens that I grew up around because they were the same tortillas that we had in Tijuana also with all my tias and aunts and uncles and stuff. So I feel like once you've had homemade flour tortillas, like it's, it's life life changing. And I will, the first time I had them, I never ever went back to like, it's a revelation. Big store band. Um, it's funny. Sometimes to this day, if my, if my mom comes up from San Diego to visit me, she'll bring from a very specific carniceria that's Imperial beach, which is, you know, just three mm-hmm. exits up from the border, from the linea. And she like separates them, you know, she'll put them in a double bag. I freeze them. That to me is like, thank you. Like that's really sort of like chiqueandome, you know, that's like, she's definitely babying me if she brings me flour tortillas <laughs> from down there. Cause it's hard to find good ones here in LA. Sometimes I'll grab them from like Northgate. I didn't realize how hard it was to find it's them. It's hard, here. yeah. And it's funny, my parents have such a standard for that, which actually I don't think they understand how sophisticated their standard is, but they will never buy them unless they've seen them made in that moment and bagged immediately and handed to you. And the bag is so hot, you literally can't handle it. You just have to throw it in your cart. Right. And that's at the Mexican supermarkets in neighborhoods like City Highs in National City, definitely in Chula Vista, where mm-hmm. my sister and my mom live now. So yes, flour tortillas, LA, get with it. <laughs> um, I lived in San Diego for about a year. I lived oh, yeah. in Normal Heights, normal like heights. off Adams and the- The 805, so, Great. Yeah, the 805, like right up at the top of the hill. Um, but I worked in Chula Vista. And at that time I worked for Sherwin Williams in one of their paint stores. Mm. And people would come, people would drive over across the border to buy their paint because the, the quality of paint here was better. Yeah and speak zero English and like the high school Spanish. It's funny how it just all comes back when you know, oh, yeah. like, okay, I need my colors, <laughs> I need my numbers, I need to know inside, outside. Yeah, um, I love um, that. Yeah, it was great. It was great because I thought, oh, I didn't realize that I could speak it, but I am speaking, you know, like I'm speaking enough Spanish to be able to communicate. It turns on. Cause they come in and they're like, oh, counter and we're like you can like figure it out um that's one of the big secrets about people in southern california it doesn't really matter what ethnicity or background you are when you need it your high school or even your most rudimentary television spanish will turn on if and when yes it is needed in any context here in, in la for sure it's like when you throw somebody in a country if you throw somebody in a country and they don't know the language if you're forced if you don't have any other choice, you will eventually pick up the language. Like you, yeah. you have to in order to survive. Yeah, um, it's um, awesome. What? So, what was life like for you growing up in San Diego? Well, we grew up in a very typical, I think, Mexican household. Immigrant, I suppose it was immigrant, but for us, the border was more like crossing the toll. Um, you know, my parents are native to Tijuana. My grandparents or sort of settled there when they were very young. And one of my grandparents is native, native, native to Baja California. And so I I didn't realize what a unique experience that was until I went to college. I went to Northern California, was at Berkeley. And that's when I was like, okay, well, I was meeting other Latino, Mexican, Chicano students. Um, 
with migrant trajectories that were far deeper and 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 just completely different than mm-hmm. mine, I guess. Sort of technically, I am the child of immigrants, but you know, I, I sort of my mind frame has always been this kind of duality, and so um, it was a very normal sort of lower middle class nineteen uh, eighties um, thing. We grew up in very mixed neighborhoods back then. I think the California neighborhoods that are now sort of entirely brown were, um, in at least in the city like San Diego, our neighborhoods were always very mixed. African-American, Mexican-American, and like Vietnamese, Cambodian, Laotian. Mm-hmm. That kind of a mixture and like a very 30-30-30 mixture. And so, um, and with like smatterings of like a, like a poor whites or whites in our class range, right. I guess. And... Um, so when I moved to here to L.A., and in particular, since I moved back to L.A. after having lived many years in Mexico City, um, I'm now sat on south side, I guess, south of the 10. I'm over here. Um, and it reminds me, this area in particular, West Adams, South Central, Crenshaw, Baldwin Hills, remind me very much of the neighborhoods that I grew up in in San Diego because we grew up in very, like, black, brown kind of a vibe and our teachers and our school buses and our classmates and 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 so that I think to me was kind of a very defining experience and also sort of a background that I didn't know that a lot of people don't have because now you have high schools that are like 90% Latino or like 98% Latino and that in a certain way sort of troubles me because it's not um, good I think for students to be in these completely um, you know, monochromatic kind of settings. Right. Um, but that's, you know, where we are demographically in the city and how the city has transformed. And so I think we try to, um, I at least try to sort of stay true to that root that I have, which is this is normal and, and this is our normal. And, and, you know, what kind of stories and what kind of food can we enjoy in that kind of a mixture? I grew up in Rosemead, which at the time in the 80s was was majority was Hispanic and yeah. it was also Vietnamese and Chinese. And like I remember all of my friends were of those ethnicities and we had maybe two we had two African-American students in my entire high school. Wow. Um, which is crazy. And I don't know what the makeup of Rosemead is now because I haven't lived there in a long time. But um, I remember it being very normal to me because it was just this huge mix. Uh, my best friend in middle school um, was Hispanic and then my best friend in high school was Chinese. And it's so, like... I got exposed to like other cultures and other food. Um, and then you meet somebody who, like you meet somebody who grew up in a whole, like a completely white neighborhood and they're yeah. like, oh, we had like three Hispanic kids in my school. And I was like, what? Yeah. What is ah. that like? Like, that's weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know how many white kids we had in my school. I never thought about it, but yeah, um, but yeah the makeup, it's very different. I lived in Long Beach for a little while before we moved up here. And I like this neighborhood, which used to be predominantly African-American before the yeah. riots and now is 90% Hispanic. Yep. Um, yeah, and okay. Long Beach is a great... Long Beach actually reminds me a lot of San Diego in the sense that there is a little bit more integration, kind right. of house to house to house yeah. in a lot of parts of it. And so that's... Yeah, I like it when I'm down there. When I get out of sort of the core of LA, I'm like, oh, I feel good here, you know, wherever it is. So you... And, and correct me if I'm wrong, you made two trips to Mexico City. You made the first trip... The first time when your parents were like, are you crazy? Why do you want to go back yes. there? Um, and then you made the second trip for the paper. Like you went back there to write the second time, but you stayed for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so I guess talk about 
it's part of that question. At what point did you decide to, to turn it into a book versus okay. a series of articles? Well, actually, this is how it happened. I, when I was finishing college, I was very curious about Mexico. I would meet non-Mexican people who had traveled deeply inside this country, which technically sort of was my route. And yet I had zero understanding, awareness, or familiarity with beyond the immediate border region. That is to say Ensenada, Tijuana, Mexicali, right? Mm -hmm. That was sort of like the extent of my journey and travel inside Mexico. And I'm a 20 year old kid and I'm thinking, all these people have been to the Anthropology Museum and to Teotihuacan and to Cancun even and to Vallarta and Jalisco and all my friends, even Mexican-Americans that I knew would always go every summer or every winter to their ranch. And I didn't have a ranch. You know what I mean? Like right. I just had TJ. And so <laughs> I really wanted to know it because it felt if it felt compelling enough for non-Mexicans to want to go visit it and see it and who were apparently um, de uh, deeply, um, in many cases, um, uh, familial now with Mexico, wherever they might choose to have settled, um, I felt that I should too, and that I could too. And while a lot of my classmates after college would run off to London or to New York or to Paris or to Tokyo, I thought, well, why don't I try Mexico City? It'll be just as foreign to me as any of those other places. Right. And so that's what I did. I backpacked around for a summer. I had a job waiting for me here at the LA Times, actually, and they wanted me right out of school. And I thought, give me three months. Let me go some so some old see Mexico backpack, and I literally saw as much of it of it as I could on like pennies because it's like we're talking two thousand one, right? You know, this is before smartphones, this is before camera phones, this is before the internet, and really Mexico is always five years before before Ma Google Maps, which, before which and, I, and like I'm pre Google Maps, but sometimes when I think like how would I get around, like I've driven across the country before in a car, yeah, I'm trying to do that without a smartphone it, it was a different period man it really was a different period and i literally would show up at a bus station and be like okay where on the map do i want to go next and i went and i saw you know and the other travelers that i would interface with were usually from the united states anglo you know mm -hmm. people from the uk uh people from different parts of europe for the most part and different parts of the united states so i was actually meeting lots of interesting cool people um, but I was one of the few sort of Chicanos going back and sort of trying to find out the motherland, you know? And I traveled all the way through the Yucatan, through Puebla, Guerrero, Oaxaca, all around the center of the country. And I fell in love with the place. I think I sort of got bit by the bug and I always wanted to move back there. And so I had to make a strategic decision thinking for your career, go to LA, get those journalism chops, start working at the LA Times, and eventually in a few years you'll move back. And actually that's what I did. So I was at the LA Times about four years, and then I went to the LA Weekly. I was there for about a year and a half. And then I just, and then I covered the 2006 presidential election for the LA Weekly. And that was the key moment, because I did a cover story for the LA Weekly. And that's when I got offers from agents and from book publishers who were interested in exploring book ideas with me. And eventually the book that we were able to sell was sort of an expansion of the cover story which was headlined Down and Delirious in Mexico City, which eventually ended up also becoming the title of the book. And, and um, I moved to Mexico to do that book in November, on Day of the Dead, 2007. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was 11 years ago. The anniversary would have been just recently. And I thought that was a very good omen. Uh, my birthday is also around Day of the Dead. 
and I just landed in a bedroom, you know, for some blogger friends of friends, and I just hit the ground and I started eating as much as I could and exploring as much as I could. And at the time I was, you know, 27 years old, had just turned 27. I really felt that I wanted to use sort of the last years of my 20s to do a sort of social, cultural, and ethnographic journalistic portrait of young people and the youth subcultures of Mexico City, which at the time, and still are in many ways, extremely vibrant and robust and, uh, and so critical to the formation of what it will mean to be Mexican, I think, in the 21st century. Those kids right now are defining that. So that's what happened with the book. And then I just kind of stayed, you know? I was there eight years in total until I decided to move back. That's a back. long time. Yeah. It's almost a decade. Almost a decade I was there. Um, the, when I was looking for, when I found your book, it's because I was looking for a book that talked a little bit more about Mexico's culture and its history and its people. And it was so hard to find, like I couldn't find, I'd find a list and then the list would be like, oh, this book, no, not this one. Yeah. And, and what I liked about your book is that it wasn't just about the food. It wasn't just about the art. It wasn't just about the people. It was everything. Like you, you kind of gave a great overview of, of, Here's, here's people who are religious and here's yeah. the like punk movement and here are, are people that are into fashion. Um, I didn't want to sort of do a <laughs> Coco-esque, Calavera, Day of the Dead kind of, not to knock on Coco, yeah. <laughs> but there are certain levels of imagery that are very familiar to Mexico about Mexico for Americans. It's a romantic place. It's a place of escape. It's a place best represented in place in things in many people's eyes, like Old Town in San Diego, right. which is the equivalent of the Olvera Street, mm -hmm. which is the every border or sort of southwest uh, uh, post-Mexican city in the United States. Albuquerque has like its own Old Town. You know, it has yeah. its own little sort of Mexican village in the middle of it that sort of is how people see Mexico. And I was interested in the smog and in the hamburgers and in the roaches and in the punks <laughs> and in the newspapers. Like, I really didn't want to gussy up this image of Mexico City because it is, at the end of the day, a very rough, international, modern, polluted, 21st century, sort of crazy beheaded megalopolis, which demands the kind of scrutiny, I think, that any big city, including this one, uh, 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 needs to have, you well, know what I mean? Eric Galindo and I were talking about the L he was the LA that people see if you don't live here, the Hollywood, the stars, the Malibu, the West side versus the real LA, which is like the problem, the homeless problem we have and the trash in the streets and the, and the poverty and the, the disparity. There's like no middle class anymore. It's, it just keeps widening and widening. And that's the part that so gets, true pushed away, like, you know, from the media that they, they don't really talk about. Um, and that's the real LA versus the, the pretend. Completely, completely. Like Mexico and everyone going, I want to go to Cancun, I want to go to Puerto Vallarta. We want to go to the resorts, but yeah. you could go to a resort like anywhere and it would, it's going to look probably as non-Mexican as you can get. You need to, it's traveling away from. And you know what, those internal, those um, stereotypes and those misinformed perceptions often are generated internally. That is to say, in Mexico City, I would confront many people, and I'm talking sort of upper class sort of people, who would be like, I would never go to Nesa, to Ciudad Nesa do Alcoyotul. Oh my God, you're gonna get mugged and kidnapped and we're never gonna see you again, never go there. Or people who would proudly proclaim to me, like with pride, like with 
unironic pride that they had never ridden the subway in their life. <laughs> and if you don't know the Mexico City subway, yes, it's intense. And yes, it's full of 4.5 million people every single day. We'll get into that system. But it is one of the most egalitarian and invigorating and inspiring kind of public transportation. It's like being in the subway in New York City if oh you've my never God, been on yeah. before. But you, but you know, once you kind of get in the flow, it's like being a salmon and swimming upstream. You just move. Yeah. You know, and it's so crazy because in New York City, even the ritziest, you know, Upper East Side, Upper West Side kind of like person is still going to hop on the train if they need to run downtown. And ritzy people in Mexico definitely do not do that. We get that here, though. If you talk to people with money here, they're like, oh, I would never take the metro anywhere. You're like, like dude, why? Why like... would you not? Yeah, the metro is clean and yeah. you can get from one place to the other. It's If you live within walking distance of a station, you really have no excuse in this city to well, use it occasionally. that is part of the problem. And that is like, the problem. People ask me if I take the metro. And I'm like, well, the closest one is at Exposition, which is like a two-mile walk. It's um, still an issue that we have to face here, I think. This city is really ripe for one. It just needs about 10 more lines crisscrossing in every direction um, for it to look and feel like New York or Mexico. Right. But once you're in the system here, it's also kind of like, oh, I'm back on the train in New York or Mexico. You know, the people, the vendors, the smells, the contrast. Mm -hmm. You know, there are homeless people. There are people with mental illness on the train. And that's our world and our reality. So for that to sort of turn you off from potentially using public transportation then you know just don't be on the planet buddy like you know like that's who we are right um some of the best food i've ever had in my life was in tijuana but the perception of people here i would send pictures of people were like don't don't lose your head are you gonna it's the same thing yeah. why would you go to tijuana what is yeah. that you're eating I'm like you you're missing out like, it's like you're missing out it man. felt safer than a lot of parts of la that i've been into i've been in we walked at night to a taqueria yeah um and, and back, there was less graffiti. I didn't, there was no point where I felt like, oh no, we're in Mexico. I, I hope I don't that. get kidnapped. Yeah, um, yeah. And all the people in Revolución were like, tell your friends to, because it was slow. So they were like, tell your friends to come, because people are afraid to come. Um, oh, don't and, you miss the golden era of the 90s? And it's like, <laughs> you yeah. would use a fake ID. I mean, I, I would. <laughs> no, yeah. I would go to concerts. I lived in San Diego. A band would play, I'd see a metal band that would play in, um, in Revolucion, there was like a club right on the other side. Yeah. We'd part, we'd walk over, and then we'd go to the concert, and we'd walk back and come back. And the, totally. that was pre 9-11. But. Yeah, those were the days. And it was always, TJ was always a place of liberation, of freedom, and of good food. Because that for me, I mean, if I really want to reach back, I remember going to my granny's, you know, my grandmother's house, and my abuelita, and she would make, you know, her own flour tortillas, of mm -hmm. course. And, you know, her kind of like carne picada, you know, her own potatoes, her own beans. And yeah, I mean, TJ is such also a very great place and I, I love it. And, but I also don't romanticize it. I think, you know, TJ does have issues and problems and it needs to right. be, you know, addressed because yeah, nothing's wrong in Mexico. It's beautiful and it's great. You're there for a little bit or for a night or for a few weeks or even a few months, but when it does happen, you don't want to be there. You don't want to be in that moment if something awful happens because the real fear in Mexico is the lack of rule of law and the ability for a criminal to victimize you and nothing, you would have no recourse or right. your survivors would have no recourse. And that's what I think is saddest about Mexico because there's so much good stuff there, you know. Um, yeah, I just recently did an episode um, 
based on Sinaloan food. Mm -hmm. And like Sinaloa gets so much negative publicity because of the cartel. They also have some amazing flavors and food. Oh my God. Um, and I, I feel like it gets overshadowed because of the, the negativity. Completely. Culiacan? Culiacan? Yeah, yeah, the capital city. Yeah. Um, yeah. Had some amazing mariscos there. There is the part of me that's like, oh, I totally want to go there and eat. But then there's there's part of me that's like, it's also cartel land. So like, yeah. I should probably go, if I go, I should be careful because. Yeah. And that's what's really hard, I think, for us as food journalists is how to reflect and guide people to really interesting and tasty cuisines that can really broaden their minds, but also not forget the real life and the real politic and the real consequences that people are living with. Um, people in Culiacán are wonderful, amazing people, and they're very proud, and they have a wonderful uh, food tradition. And they also might be sort of so normalized now to the violence or to the control of criminals and, right. and narco that they might not even realize at any point how deep they are involved. And so, because it's everyday life for them. Because it's everywhere, and I think that that is key to understand for a lot of people. We went, Rob. I went once to a little town in Guerrero for to cover some cartel shit, basically. Um, it was with Vice, and we stayed in a little town. Everyone there was involved in poppy production. They were making poppy for eventual heroin, right. which would reach the United States and probably lead to a lot of broken, ruined lives. But, and we stayed in a little house with some people. There was not even a hotel about how small this village was. And I had some of the most amazing homemade chorizo, like made from the animal in the backyard kind of chorizo. That was the most divine chorizo I've ever had in my life. My mouth is watering right now just thinking about it. Like it <laughs> well, because it's so pure. There's no steps so between the animal and the, and the chorizo on the and, table. And the, and the chorizo on the table. And the wonderful 13-year-old girl with a ponytail down to her knees learning how to make this from her grandmother. And you know that this town, no matter what it's doing, will always have this amazing chorizo until the end of time. <laughs> Um, and, and the poppy fields, it's just, I, I feel like if that's your way of life or that's, that's the job that you have to do in order to survive and not like be homeless or, or yeah. and have a place to live, you do that and without, and you're, you're almost separated from what those are eventually going to become. Cause it's not like you're drug milling them across the Completely. border. You're just doing one part of that job. Yeah. I mean, I think the real sort of bad vibes and bad guys come in when you have the, middlemen who become the sort of the suppliers to then the big cartels and the big groups. But at the farmer level, they're just farmers. They don't see this, by the way, which is a beautiful little flower. It really mm -hmm. shimmers in light incredibly. You can tell it's, it's kind gotten of, such a bad like It's gotten rap such now. a <laughs> bad rap, but the poppy is a beautiful psychedelic little flower and they see it like the avocado and the squash and the frijol and the maize that they also grow. And so that's another huge thing for us. But yeah, man, everywhere you go in Mexico, the food, it's so distinct. Every different region and town and place has something slightly different. Totally. You can't grow the same thing in every region because they don't have the same climate. Yeah, and you think about the Yucatan mm -hmm. and the food there. The Yucatan to me is like Thailand, or it's like if I'm in Burma or Indonesia or Myanmar or something, it's just like this far off, tropical place the people there have been there for thousands of years their spanish is so different it's full of x's and k's and tz's mm -hmm. you know because the mayan root right. and their names are kind of filled with these strange letters and it's to me it's a different country and so many parts of mexico 
feel that way. So it's really cool. I wish if Mexico were pacified to a suitable level, I would love to see more of Sinaloa mm -hmm. or Tamaulipas, which is a complete dead zone for so many of us. And it's the most violent, scariest part of Mexico. You know, but yeah, even in Guerrero and Oaxaca, the difference between the coast and the mountains is so stark, you know. The dry upper valleys of Oaxaca versus the mountains of Oaxaca versus the versus the coastline. So many different cuisines intermixed through all that. It's fascinating. Before the podcast, I didn't realize the Chinese influence in, in Mexicali uh -huh. because they got stuck there. They were migrating and the U.S. wouldn't let them in. And, and we're the reason that they... That's the reason they built a wall initially in the yep. first place. Um, so then they stayed down there. And when I talked to Ezra Zochoa, he, because he's from there, he's like, when I go home, I don't go home to eat Mexican food. I go to all my favorite Chinese food places. Because the Chinese like, my food. Mom will make, <laughs> my mom will make my favorite food. But yeah. the, he's like, that's the best Chinese food I've ever had in my life. It's so bomb. It's the <laughs> best. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's funny. I have friends from Mexicali and their last names are like, you know, for example, one of my dear friends, I'll just name her. Her name is Daniela, like me. Hernandez, like me, but her second names are Chong Kui. <laughs> She's Daniela Hernandez Chong Kui, you know? And if you're from Mexicali, you're just going to have, there'll be something about your face that'll have some sort of like ethnic Asian echo right. to it. And yet for them, they're just, whenever, for example, when I meet black Mexicans in Guerrero mm -hmm. and in the coast of Oaxaca, Afro-Mestizos, the strangely liberating, or if you were to see it from a different perspective, um, limiting, Thing about sort of Mexican national identity is no matter what color or ethnicity you are in Mexico, you just see yourself as Mexican and that's about it. And so I've, I've confronted that with sort of um, Jewish and Lebanese Mexicans mm -hmm. who are just like, what do you, yeah, I mean, I'm let my parents, but I'm Mexican, you know, and Chinese Mexicans in Mexicali and Afro Mexicans in Guerrero and Oaxaca, they all ultimately just see themselves as sort of this big old pot and I think that is also sort of something that is starkly different um, to identity in the United States, where every identity is factionalized to the smallest kind of derivative possible. I was going to say, we have to break everything down into a subcategory yeah. and, and label, and whereas it's, it must be so much more freeing to not have to worry about the labeling. Everybody is a Mexican. Yeah, everyone's a Mexican. They're just like, okay, so now let's talk about class or let's talk about sort of region. And that, right. I think that's where people then have their sort of um, uh, political... Um, you know, positioning in the broader context of the society. Because yes, it's also very liberating, but then you also end up kind of erasing some of the stories that are there in that history. You as a historian understand, you know, it's like you can't just erase these. Why is Mexicali so Chinese? American right. Chinese Exclusion Act and also anti-Chinese uh, policies in Mexico as well, you know. Um, yeah, I've, I've grown to dislike the Spaniards in every story. Every story I have to tell <laughs> about Mexico's history, I realize that like everything's fine and everyone's happy. And then the Spaniards yeah, came. And then it was horrible <laughs> for a while. And eventually it got better, but it was really horrible before it got better. And like that's oh. the part that really fascinates me the most. It's not like Mexican history began in you know 1519 when Hernan Cortez, who was you know a marauding kind right. of um, criminal, actually. Um, landed on the coast of Veracruz or whatever, slightly before or after that. We're talking hundreds of years, thousands of years, if you look at the long view, but definitely a network of formal and fully realized uh, civilizations interacting with one another over a very long period of time. And I think that history still trickles up to the surface 
in Mexico today, and that's super interesting. Yeah, and I feel like that history—it's exactly the best way that I could put it—that that history was there, and even though Spaniard opposition came through, eventually that still kind of rose back over to the top, and, and that's and especially in a lot of the food, that's where that comes from. It's not like the food has. Spanish influence from yeah. Spain in it. It's it's that they kept their roots. Yeah, just despite bit, all of that horrible enslavement and despite and, uh, you know colonialism and despite the diseases that really oh, wiped yeah, everyone out. You no, know, I remember reading something very interesting about sort of that there was sort of a physical mutation in sort of in Mexico mm-hmm. after colonialism and after more than anything, millions, millions and mil- tens of millions of people died from smallpox and stuff like that. That. Mexicans before conquest were not, you know, stereotypically short, that there had been some that enough of sort of the healthy sort of DNA lines of Mexican stock or whatever were wiped out in the aftermath of colonialism. And that it's sort of almost miraculous that indigenous Mexicans have survived up until this point and a strength of resilience. But as, and not that they came back shorter as opposed to like... No, like, right. That it's like that there was some... Enough people died down that there was sort of some... I don't know. It's just a theory. Right. I should look it up before discussing it. But like that... Sh- I mean, that shows you how awesome the force of colonialism was. And right. the fact that many traditions like pulque... For, I just did a big magazine piece about pulque, for example. It's one of these pre-Hispanic foods that has survived, you know? And when you think about how important Mexico is to actual world food, you know, the formation of the tomato, the formation of corn, you know, uh, chocolate, vanilla, all of these things that find a root in the sort of geography that is now the boundaries of the Mexican Republic, I think, you know, it, it ends up being a very important place to the world and a place that all of us that should matter to all of us and care, and we should all care about irrespective of our actual sort of uh, ethnic or national background. Right, I, I, it's interesting how we we almost celebrate the the Spanish coming over and um, discovering the United States and like turning us into what we are. Whereas like you look at Mexican history and it's, for me, I guess because I'm actually reading it much, so much more of a negative thing. They just kind of came and as a like, swarm of locusts and just destroyed yeah, everything. And I mean, really, they did that here, but we we, white, we whitewash it um, to, and then like we're celebrating Columbus Day and like, yeah. it's okay, it's all a good thing, even though people don't want to think about the fact that the, there were natives here and they all got treated horribly and wiped out. And Yeah, I wonder what would have happened <laughs> if Mexico had sort of had a destiny of sort of more like India, where there was more of this integration and, you know, people there grow up speaking English mm-hmm. if you become educated. But you are also a part of a society that has survived and has sort of many of these majestic uh, traditions and architecture. I mean, if the pyramids were still used, maybe after the Enlightenment or whatever, we would have stopped doing human sacrifice (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) But imagine if the pyramids have sort of survived as religious temples to this day, as they have in other sort of major uh, post-colonial centers like, um, you know, the subcontinent of Asia. And it would have been just oh Mexico could be a real trip then. <laughs> yeah, I forgot I forgot about the religious aspects of like of just of Aztec versus although when you think about Catholicism all the problems it's just as brutal still, if not worse yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah but um so tell me about how what got you to LA Taco okay so I decided that I had done my time if you will in Mexico um, you know 
I put in my time. I sort of I, I plugged my card and I thought it was time to come back, particularly because I wanted to satisfy my parents and not have them freak out anymore about working in Mexico and doing journalism. Over well, eight years, they feared for your life. Yeah, they kind of, I mean, I would always kind of laugh it off. And kind of towards the last few years that I was there, I realized that it was actually sort of tormenting them and, and that I didn't want to keep tormenting them if I didn't have to. And also found that no matter how hard I pushed, journalistically speaking, on sort of the major political crimes and the major human rights violations that I was seeing the Mexican government mm-hmm. do against its own people, um, I kept pressing it and I and I and I tried to make a dent and I think I did in some form, but I was not going to change Mexico by just like hitting it over the head as much as I could right. with the news about the, all the horrible things happening. So and I also realized I was very much a California kid that I missed the ocean. I missed the water. I missed California stories. I missed the food. I missed the people and I missed American style diversity, you know, and so I decided to move back. And that's when I got a call from, you know, Alex Blaisdell, the publisher of LA Taco. I was here um, for about a couple of years, drifting through these jobs, trying to get these sort of New York media outlets to understand LA, not having any luck on that. Finally, I was freelancing again. Then the LA Weekly folds, right? They have the right. Red Wedding. Everyone gets fired. That's a perfect way to put it. It's Marsha Loop. The ex-editor Marsha Loop described it like that on, on Twitter. And, and that's what it was. And I just remember a sense of panic. Like, what is happening? How can we be the second largest media market in this country and be whittling ourselves down to literally one Metropolitan Daily newspaper right. and like a weekly that doesn't exist anymore and a couple of sort of like nominal kind of alternative digital news sites um that i remember the days of the herald examiner when i was a kid like, we imagine, would get that delivered to the house yeah yeah <laughs> when there were still two papers when there were still two papers in san diego we had two papers as well we'd get the morning union and the afternoon tribune or might have been reversed but mm-hmm. the point was we did grow up in a time when there was multiple print outlets and i'm not saying they needed to stay in print but that kind of diversity of viewpoints and of perspectives and of different reads on a city, um, I think it's up to our generation. And it has become our generation's responsibility to keep bridging that divide between the Internet future of all of us and the analog future of just around the time of our births. And so um, he called me and he said, look, how much can I pay you now to start posting on the site tomorrow? And that was end of literally and that was end of november and i said yes i'm ready you know i was like closing up a bunch of little freelance assignments doing things this and that doing stuff for kcrw kpcc and finally i said yeah dude like right away i mean it felt like now was the time i obviously had just spent three years building vice news in latin america i was mm-hmm. a bureau mexico bureau chief for vice news i had a network of you know 10 to 15 reporters in eight different cities in latin america you know across four or five different time zones I know how to run a news operation now. And um, I actually still find myself having to remind that to people because yes, us brown kids have chops and we can do things, you know? (laughs) And so um, I was, um, I told them that I was ready to do that. And I, and I, and so immediately we started very modestly myself posting one story a day, incorporating the website's longtime contributors, which go back to 2006, 2007. Mm -hmm and starting to do more news and sort of picking up the temperature, picking up the pace, 
And little by little, actually very quickly, we started getting noticed. And so now in the past year, we've brought on a managing editor, Eric Galindo, who's been a guest on your podcast. Uh, now we have socials people. Now we have like a news writer. We have incredible food contributors, Cesar Hernandez, Javier Cabral, Gustavo Arellano, obviously, people like Melissa Mora Hidalgo doing incredible stories for us. And we just want to keep reflecting LA and, and reflecting the food and the culture. And I think the concerns of street level LA, whatever those may be. Your social media people are doing an awesome job, by the way. Because yeah. I knew that you'd put that, I think you put the feeders out looking for them and then pretty quickly had hired some people. And the, the level of like Twitter and Instagram stuff I could tell immediately when they took over, like, oh, oh they're, they're they're all over this shit, like all, yeah. It was great. I love it, Mar Mariah Castaneda. Mm -hmm. She's. I loved her stuff when I'm doing voting, but pre-voting stuff. Was yeah, great. she's just like being herself. Um, and Eric Huerta, of course, long time in Boyle Heights guy, food guy. Mariah's very new. She's out of uh, UC Irvine, and a lot of times the staff they'll get like nervous and stuff. I'm like. Just be you, just give us information, just tell us what it is that's going on and it's happening. So we're very glad to sort of be giving the space to new voices and also incorporating um, uh, other voices and older voices and more seasoned jour journalists and reporters. At the end of the day, we wanna be a home for everyone, all of LA. And I think it's up to you as a viewer, as a listener, as a reader to confront your biases about what LA might be. Because I don't see ourselves as a Latino website. I see ourselves as an L.A. website. And so you're either on the train or not, you know, but we're going full steam ahead. And, you know, and, and, and that's the sort of L.A. that we want to serve. One thing I love about, um, and, and I noticed this when you came on board, for me, um, it was always like, oh, I can go here for like Taqueria recommendations or like stuff about art. But now I can just go to LA Taco for everything LA. And so ah. it kind of fills that gap for me that the LA Times was doing, but I didn't always love the way they were doing it. I just yeah. felt like, oh, I don't have to go to the LA Times for everything anymore. You, LA like, Weekly, to, you mean? Um, LA Weekly too. Yeah. I've been LA then. Times for some time. <laughs> I, I meant LA Times, but like I prefer LA Taco. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I, st I used to read LA Weekly a lot and I had stopped for a while before yeah. Red Wedding. Me too. Um, and then obviously I didn't go back after that. But um, honestly, like LA Taco's filling the LA Times gap for me. <laughs> Man, I'm really happy to hear that. And I really appreciate that. It's amazing what you can do with so little money. People ask us like, where's your office and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, do you not see that we're like literally just kind of chugging along and doing this? But right. when you have a dedicated crew and when you have a real vision and a real mission, um, you do sort of, you can, you know, be the David confronting the, the Goliath. You know what I mean? In the sense that we have very limited resources, but we're Latino, we're Mexican, we're brown, we're Rascacho, we're from the streets. We can improvise. That's one thing Mexican people can do. We can improvise. We can make stuff work. You will never be homeless, you know, <laughs> if you're I, part of a big clan, you know. Um... And, and I talked to Eric about this when he was on the show. We talked about your your joining, which I think is a really cool um, Patreon-esque way of doing it on your own, where you're like, hey, if you guys want to give money every month to LA Taco, it's like a subscription, but you're you're getting like, here's a discount card to certain places, and yeah. possibly we're going to be in print. You want to talk? He talked about it a little bit. If sure. You wanna... Yeah. So again, we didn't want to do the standard models. We've always 
I feel like Alex as well, who's been so dedicated and he's putting so much on the line and I just, I appreciate him so much and I know he's so media shy and he doesn't want to be sort of the face of Taco, but man, for a guy to be putting that much of his own resources really in giving us the runway that we need to really take off, I think is a, a miraculous thing. Um, we didn't want to do Patreon. We didn't want to do Kickstarter. We didn't want to sort of fall in line with the kinds of channels and platforms that other media organizations or startups use in order to engage their audience. We always just want to go out al alone and find our own way. And so we did start a membership program and it's been going great. I think we're up to about 200 members now. Wow. We awesome. didn't, yeah, so we didn't want to, um, which is a lot for the, a little site, you know? Well, and it hasn't, you haven't been pushing for that long. It's only been a couple of months. We've maybe. only been pushing a yeah. couple of months. Over the past 12 months, I, I do want to say that we've grown 500% in terms of traffic and views, but we're still not up where we want to be. I think 2019 will be critical for us. And this membership plan, I think, was really good for people to say, you know what, the world is on fire. The country is falling into the hands of ethno-nationalists and fascists. Um, if I were an Angelino not working at LA Taco, I would want to be throwing my money at someplace that is protecting community news, um, a buffering and supporting local news. And also, eventually, I think I would hope that gesture also means protecting First Amendment protections for our communities. You know what I'm saying? These big news organizations can often feel so bought into certain corporate lines of stories right. that it doesn't have to be that way. Well, you don't feel like you feel like you're not getting an unbiased. It is, it is hard to find unbiased news in 2018 because really you're constantly is. questioning everything you're reading. Yeah, and it's often slanted in this sort of well-meaning but ultimately um, incomplete kind of liberal view. And liberal policies don't always often lead to sort of a social Shangri-La. When I came back to the United States from Mexico I, and to Los Angeles in particular, I have been appalled by the house, housing and the homelessness crisis. And for me, and this is why I, 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 I really put a lot of value and a lot of emphasis on my having uh, lived in other parts of the world, in Mexico in particular, mm -hmm. and, and, and not being a sort of an actual native Los Angeles because a native Angelino will have their regional biases and, and down to their neighborhood biases and actually not having grown up here permits me to sort of feel that all of it is mine and none of it is mine and that's how i also approached mexico city and i think that's how you find the best kinds of stories when you turn off all your blinders and you really try to open your eyes um people in la i noticed in these eight years that i were gone that i was gone became very comfortable and complacent with the critical situation with housing and with homelessness and, and I think that we are attacking that head on and we're looking at it from the point of view of the streets. And whereas, unfortunately, I think a lot of the other news organizations only look at those stories from the perspective of homeowners and people who are yes. protecting their property taxes. And the role of an outlet like LA Taco, just real quick, I think should be to challenge those perspectives. So we're not biased, but we are sort of challenging you to look at it from a different view and to look at it from the people who are most suffering the effects of these broader forces, which go to Wall Street and go to, you know, the essence of capitalism or whatever you want to call it, but that we need to confront bit by bit here in our community. The homeless problem is the thing I get the most incensed about because no one, everybody wants to, I always equate it to um, a kid getting picked on like in school where like maybe they steal the kid's hat and they're pushing him back and forth and the kid's getting shoved back and forth. Everybody wants to, oh, we, yeah. we, we don't want the homeless here. 
And then the next city's like, well, we want them over here, so push it back. Yeah. And it, um, like downtown in the Arts District is a great example where they tried to push them over into Boyle Heights, and Boyle Heights was like, no. But no one, no one stops to say, what? It's not helping. You're yeah. just ma- you're just making them move, but we're not solving the problem, which is yeah. that they don't have a place to live. Yeah, um, it's a huge issue. Huge. And and I well, I appreciate the guy who made the little tiny houses that were on the overpasses, and I thought <laughs> like I thought that's an awesome like idea for, sol- but it's not the solution because now you have houses on the sidewalk and like yeah. that are permanent dwellings, um, and it's still not going to fix the problem. But um, I I get frustrated when because I don't feel like I don't know the answer. You know, I, know, I don't like, know it either. And you so know, and and we just have to keep pushing on these things and, and until someone actually comes up with the answer. And I think until someone sort of gains the political will to want to do it. Right. Um, but there has there there it, it gets to a huge question. But it also sort of I think it should force us to confront what our humanity is and what our what are our morals and our what are our LA values and. And have we maybe drifted from them in this sort of like intense push to um, promote L.A. and to sort of make L.A. the sort of magnet of arts and culture and tourists? Yes, but A, L.A. has always been that. And if the tourists are only discovering us now, well, that's bad on them. But B, when we sort of spruce up and develop this city and you see this in plan after plan, particularly here in South L.A. or in West Adams or by the USC, by downtown, who are you fixing it up for? You know, I, I hear from so many native Angelinos who are like, they, they they start becoming feeling like foreigners in their own city and that breaks my heart. Like, no man, like I did an article on Daryl Kunitomi who was the tour guide at the LA Times for, you know, 30 some years. And he told me this with such a um, forlornness in his voice that really touched me that I'm thinking, man, like, if you're a native Angelino and you lived here for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and this is the world that you know, and this is your city, and it's in your DNA, and it's in your blood, and it's on your skin, well, I would be uh, furious and shaken about how the city has changed and, and the kinds of ways that it has left Angelinos behind in this sort of push towards progress and towards development. It's a huge right. issue. We're going to keep tackling it. What do you feel the biggest problem... The Hispanic, the Hispanic community faces in Los Angeles today in 2018? I don't know if there is one particular thing. I mean, I know there's not one. I guess what is the most important one yeah. issue? If you could just choose one issue, because I know there's more than one. Well, I think <clears throat> there is... Um, I don't even know how to answer that, man. Honestly, it's like, for me, it's like Hispanic, Latino people are so different and diverse and have such a range. I mean, just even covering the fires just for half a day like we did earlier this week and we're kind of covering them from afar because we just don't think that they're sort of our we're not going to compete with the la times on fires but we are going to do kinds of stories that they might not have right like the the nuclear the the decommissioning everyone was ignoring (laughs) this thing and i'm like i get it if every agency is telling you not to worry well the la times is going to report and the laist or whatever are going to report that agencies are telling you not to worry i don't i don't know i mean what is the provable track record of some of these agencies in the history of the United States and in 20th century kind of post-war America is that they constantly lie and fudge um, environmental disasters right before our eyes. Until, until they, until it becomes too late. Exactly. Look at what happened with Aliso Canyon. Or until they're exposed and they go, okay, yeah, we did lie. Sorry. Yeah. Look (laughs) at Aliso Canyon, the methane leak from two years ago 
it was leaking tons and metric tons and tons and tons of methane into the air for weeks before it became a story on the LA Times. Like, I swear to God, you know, like an actual story. And so we jumped right on that. That's the kind of stuff that we're going to jump on because we're not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anyone in this city. And I don't say that as sort of puffery. I say that because I've also told, you know, narcos that I'm unafraid. <laughs> and I've also told politi politicians in Mexico that I'm unafraid. And so um, some of these narratives that become sort of normal and become sort of pack narratives in L.A. media, um, we are going to disrupt if and when, you know, it's it's necessary to do so. So, yeah, for now, it turns out that because of our story, I want to suggest um, they went up and did more testing. That story, by the way, did super well in terms of views. People wanted to hear that, wanted to see that. I saw on Twitter when you when you guys were like, we're on it. And then and then I felt like I blinked and then yeah. you guys already had a story coming out. Yeah, because that's just my <clears throat> years and years, man, of doing like quick news, picking up the phone, doing a couple phone calls, looking for these sources, bringing that information in and not waiting for KTLA or for LA Times to tell us that it's okay by them doing the story. You know right. what I'm saying? But yeah, we're still little old taco and we're literally like 1.75 working people in total, <laughs> plus all of our freelancers and people and retainers and our part-time people. So I'm glad we're able to make that kind of impact. Um, okay, so I, 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 we can't not ask you a food question. So yes. give me your three current favorite places to eat Mexican food in Los Angeles. It doesn't have to be tacos and it can be any region of Mexico. What are your three current faves? L.A. Orange County. L.A. Orange County. Well, I have eaten at Taco Maria and, and you know, um, with Carlos Salgado, right? Mm -hmm. And which was incredible. I sat there with Gustavo Ariano once. Amazing. Um, but overall, Mexican food in L.A. Um, well, I and, mean. And having grown up in San Diego, because <laughs> San Diego Mexican food is different. And I try to explain that to people. I felt like I was a burrito guy. Oh, it totally is. I would eat. There are places down there where I would almost drive the two hours, two and a half hours to go eat um, the food at they a particular restaurant and then come ass. back just yeah. to eat the food. They have good ass Mexican pie stuff. <laughs> and it's more TJ style, mm -hmm. but it's also sort of like Mexican American style. And it's kind of a sophisticated synergy of those two things. Um, if I were to just say three things, look, I live, you know, in and around mid city. I do go to Leo's. Like sometimes I need that perfect Leo's burrito. Like an mm -hmm. al pastor burrito is a good thing to Le get. <laughs> I always want Leo's when it's like 10 o'clock at night and I'm driving by and the line is like an hour long. I'm like, yeah. do I really want Leo's? No, I actually got to wait to this. Sometimes <laughs> I'll just have to like, if I just bite the bullet. Something late <laughs> night, you know. Um, there's also an incredible birria truck on La Brea at the very top of Hollywood in front of this bar called, uh, I think, The Wood or something like that. Um, but yeah, so like it's, this is big popularity researchers didn't work yeah. maybe and maybe it's my feed because i follow so many duckeros that yeah like i see it all the time and teddy's is blowing up and teddy's um, um i would say things that i've tried in the last year that were last few years since i moved back that weren't here before and that i will be like okay i can eat this um guisados is, is great man i mean they just they just found that perfect melding of the kind of mexico city style guisos guisados mm -hmm. and they have the tortilla which is bomb I love Balam whenever I'm in that area and I can go and- I um, did an episode with him. He and, was amazing. It was so much fun to talk to. And there, oh, and I had not had his food before that. I loved it. Yeah, he's an amazing, amazing um, 
just doing just something just perfect there. So I really love and appreciate Balam. I hope they're doing great. El Mexicano. Um, I live very close to the Crenshaw Mall. And you know what? Sometimes I just need like a really good flauta, like a nice crispy <laughs> chicken flautas with the three different moles. You know, it's one of those you know, $15 plates that is worth every penny. It's just an incredibly rich and satisfying thing. I'm gonna mention one more place and that, and this might be surprising, I love Mateo's. Mateo's the Hugo's place. Like if I don't, cause I do sort of like try to watch, you know, a Mexican food can be unhealthy and sort of the mm -hmm. classic LA iteration of it. Sometimes that's what I want. Sometimes yes. that's what I want, yes, and there is room for that in my belly and in my food brain. But sometimes I just want like a fresh, wholesome sandwich, a Mexican-style tuna sandwich with, you know, a nice jalapeno in it with my tuna and a nice it's a queso fresco. So sometimes I'll go to Mateo's, which is really more of a paleta place, get a nice jugo verde. There's a Mateo's on Pico next to the Green Cafe, and there's also one on Sepulveda um, in Culver City, Palms area. And um, sometimes that's, I just need like a, uh, like I just remember um, lunches in Mexico City could often be sort of quick things involving a really nice fresh fruit made fruit juice, like a blended jugo, Mexicano jugo, and a really nice sort of classic Mexican made, you know, tuna salad on a roll or on wheat. And, you know, they'll give you little slices of extra orange and even like a little dollop of like sweet cream with raisins and shaved coconut on top <laughs> as kind of a little taste of a dessert. And that kind of detalle, in, in Spanish, the, the detail, the detallito that a Mexican food presentation can happen with almost any kind of dish, that to me is always very satisfying and rich. But yeah, um, uh, it's hard to find good Mexican food in LA, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it is. is. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. It, <laughs> um, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. A great time talking with you. Thank you. I, I feel like we could talk for hours. I more, was just thinking so. that too. Yeah, it would be like a seven-hour episode, and no one would listen past this very much. Like they're just going to keep going. I love it. My um, pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, so thank much. you so much. Huge, huge thanks to Daniel for being on the show. Um, I had an amazing time with him, and I literally could have talked to him for seven more hours. Um, you can find. More from him and uh, tons from LA Taco. If you go to latacocom slash join, um, find LA Taco on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, and you can find them on Facebook. Um, they're everywhere. And you can find Daniel's book, Down and Delirious in Mexico City, on uh, Amazon. They've got the Kindle version and the paperback there. Go buy it and read it now. Um, we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks. Taco City is created and produced by Rob Goki in association with Ali Sine Productions. It's also scored by Rob Goki. You can find Taco City on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Taco City Pod. And we'd love it if you'd leave us a review in the iTunes store. Uh, it's how new people can find the podcast, uh, and it means a lot to us. So if you like us, leave us a five-star rating and a review. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new taqueria.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.